The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame. Savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit, and in possession so. Had, having, and in quest to have extreme. A bliss in proof, and proved a very woe. Before, a joy proposed, behind, a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Hmm. That's Maureen Beatty reading Shakespeare's Sonnet 129, The Expensive Spirit in a Waste of Shame. We're on our fourth week of Shakespearean sonnets today. This was our treat for August. This is how we've spent our August Thursdays. Four for four, and man, did Shakespeare ever come through. That guy. Good writer. <laughs> Did I ever tell you my story about Christopher Guest and Michael McKeon? You may know them as two members of Spinal Tap or from movies like Best in Show. American Treasures, really, in my opinion. Both of them, they are as good as it gets. Michael McKeon was on Better Call Saul. Played the brother Chuck recently. Michael McKeon had a birthday, the story goes. So Christopher Guest sent him a book of Shakespeare's poems. And on the inside cover, he wrote... Michael, this is that author I was telling you about. Shakespeare. Yes, indeed. Here's that writer I was telling you about. Shakespeare is the one who outraces us all, as Virginia Woolf says. It's hard to be a fan of writing and not admire what this guy could do and what he did. So let's remind ourselves of where we are. We heard Sonnet 18, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day. Sonnet 29, When in Disgrace with Fortune and Men's Eyes. And Sonnet 116, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds. All three of those came during what's known as the Fair Youth section of Shakespeare's sonnets, where the speaker addresses a younger man. He gives him some life advice. He showers him with praise. He talks about his own feelings for this person. Those looking for biographical mysteries have tried to find out who this person is, and some textual evidence suggests that his initials may have been W.H., which has helped fuel the theories and speculation. We might explore that someday. It would be fun to do an episode just on the fair youth and how his identity might help us understand Shakespeare better. But for now, we're turning to our next section in sonnets, which are known as the Dark Lady sonnets. Suddenly, the sonnets take a big swerve into sexuality. The fair youth was beloved by the speaker, but in a more or less chaste way, the Dark Lady poems are different. This is lust as much as love. Once again, there's enough here to tantalize biographically-minded theorists and detectives. And once again, there's enough room for doubt that we don't know exactly who this person was, assuming that the Dark Lady was a real person. We're going to have two poems today from this sequ sequence. They're back-to-back. -back. Sonnet 129, The Expensive Spirit and a Waste of Shame. And Sonnet 130, 
my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. They are both excellent, and we will do our best to explore them line by line to see what Shakespeare was up to and to see what those poems can do for us today. Sonnets 129 and 130, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I'm a little sad to be leaving the world of Shakespeare's sonnets. Maybe we should do this again next August. Maybe we should choose the thorniest sonnets or the most unusual or the most underappreciated. That might be fun as well. This August, we are playing the hits, and the two we have today both qualify, especially Sonnet 130. It stands atop many top ten lists. It's some people's favorite poem of all time. We had Sonnet 18, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day, which was kind of the all-time greatest love sonnet in English, at least until Elizabeth Barrett Browning came along with her How Do I Love Thee, Let Me Count the Ways, which, my goodness, you go, EBB. Land yourself right up there along with the bard himself. I think she may have surpassed him, and that's not easy to do. And we had the marriage sonnet, Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds, which is up there with Pucklebell's canon and whatever people are begging the DJ to play these days. A lot of uses in those marriage ceremonies. Well, Sonnet 130 is right up there with those two. People know it because it's funny and it's a little irreverent and it sort of jumps off the page with its personality. I've got some treats in store for you when we get to that sonnet, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, let's take our break, hear some listener emails, and then do Sonnet 129. We will save Sonnet 130 for the end. So, listener emails. Oh, if you're wondering why we're including this song, let me tell you about the song we're going to play before the break here. It's because our songwriter, Gordon Sumner, a.k.a. Sting, Speaking of Sting, and speaking of Christopher Guest, Mike Palindrome Palindrome said this to me once. He was talking about Sting, and he said, you know, the lead singer of The Police. He said that to me, a child of the 80s. That's like saying Michael Jordan, you know, he played guard for the Chicago Bulls. Yes, Mike, I know who Sting is. Sting, for those of you who don't know or who don't remember, called his second solo album Nothing Like the Sun. Dot, 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 nothing like the sun. I thought it was great, a great title, as usual for Mr. Sting. Or what did Rod Stewart call him? String. (laughs) Actually, (laughs) actually, I remember that from our Three Musketeers episode, our Alexandre Dumas episode, so I went down a rabbit hole to make sure I had the nickname right and found something that is too funny not to share. So the two... Sting and Rod Stewart, when they were in their 50s, were arguing about Grammys in the press. Here's an account, a news account. This is from 2003. Quote, British musician Sting responded Sunday to a bitter attack from fellow musician Rod Stewart by offering one of his numerous Grammy awards to the Scottish rock star. Stewart, 58 and currently riding high in the British album charts, complained that he had been consistently passed over by the music industry's premier awards in favor of rivals, such as 52-year-old Sting. They tend not to give it to the British unless you're Sting, 
the sun shines out of his dot dot dot. A pure mute jazz musician, Mr. Sirius, who helps the Indians, Stewart said in an interview with British magazine Radio Times last week. It's astounding I've never won one, he said. Sting responded generously, albeit perhaps with tongue firmly in cheek. I think he deserves one. I really do, said Sting, who has won 14 Grammys as a soloist and with the group police. You know, Rod hasn't received a Grammy. I'm thinking of sending him one of mine, he said. Oh, my. That's good stuff from String. Okay. So Sting was kind of famously an English teacher before he became an international superstar. He called one of his albums Ten Summoner's Tales, which is a takeoff on his own last name, Sumner, and Chaucer's The Summoner from his Canterbury Tales. He referred to Nabokov, or in the British pronunciation, Nabokov, in Don't Stand So Close to Me. He took a few lines from Shakespeare's sonnet 35 for his song Consider Me Gone. We like Sting here at the History of Literature podcast. He's a kindred spirit, even if others think he's a do-gooder or too pretentious or whatever his critics say. Sometimes maybe he falls into that with his lyrics, but he obviously likes literature, and that's good enough for me. Or I guess you might say he at least wants us to think he likes literature, but that's good enough for me too. And he referred to Sonnet 130 with his album, Dot, 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 nothing like the sun. He even put the dot, dot, dot in there to make sure we understand that it's coming from the phrase from Shakespeare. He's taken the second half of the first line of Sonnet 130. So in the spirit of Sting, citing Shakespeare, let's hear a snippet of a song from Nothing Like the Sun. My favorite song on the album is his is cover of Jimi Hendrix's Little Wing. And my second favorite is probably Englishman in New York. And there are big hits on the album like Be Still, My beating heart, and we'll be together. But let's try to get something to put us in the mood of the dark lady and Shakespeare's agonizing. So let's look at the song where Sting writes the first four lines in something like iambic pentameter. I think maybe the first few lines here are Sting setting out to write a sonnet. Is that crazy? Maybe some of you can tell me if he's ever talked about this. My guess is he set out to write a sonnet and then use these four lines, his first quatrain, as the lyrics. Just a theory. Listener emails after this. If blood will flow, flesh and steel I want, drying in the color of the evening sun. Tomorrow's rain will wash the stains away. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first up, a beautiful email from Eric with a K. Subject, thank you for the podcast. I am writing to you in order to show my appreciation after having listened to your podcast for several years. I am a Swedish doctor, and I discovered the history of literature while I lived in Greenland and worked as a district physician a few years back. I lived in one of the world's remotest towns of about 3,500 inhabitants, located in a southwestern part of the country. I was frequently the only doctor in town, and while on call, I was responsible for practically everything, from running the inpatient ward to handling emergencies, births, and even examining polar bear meat so that it could be safely sold and eaten. It was strenuous and rewarding work. Our hospital was tiny, and you had to cross some of the world's harshest wilderness by helicopter in order to reach the nearest town. No roads connecting towns exist in Greenland. Hurricanes, blizzards, and extreme fog frequently isolated us completely from any connection with the outside world for days to weeks. The stores ran out of eggs and vegetables, and people lived on canned and frozen food until the next shipment of supplies would arrive. In the hospital, I very often watched disease run its natural course because of lack of proper equipment and skills to cure it. For a Western physician, this was a very difficult exercise, as we are hardwired to exhaust every possible treatment option and to regard death as the ultimate failure. I frequently felt overwhelmed and affected by the fates I witnessed, a feeling that was only matched by the immense rush I experienced when I had the opportunity to help a patient with the limited resources at my disposal. Literature was my crutch through this period, as it has been for several times in the past. It helped me understand my thoughts and emotions and soothed my mind. I frequently played your podcast on my earphones on long walks through absolutely untouched polar wilderness. My only companions were your voice, my rifle, and a bag of supplies. I sometimes paused in order to listen to the silence. Yes, silence is a sound. And once you have heard it, you miss it for the rest of your life. I would walk for hours and days among mountains, ice, and sea while digesting your insights into all the writings I had only barely scratched the surface of on my own. You clarified and formulated clearly so much of what I had only previously sensed in literature. During our long walks together, I subconsciously pieced myself back together and returned refreshed and ready for another round. I thank you sincerely for the generous gift of your podcast. I wouldn't change a thing. Sincerely yours, Eric. Eric. Oh, my... Thank you for this beautiful email. 
And the beautiful picture that accompanied it, as you may know, I collect listener experiences like postcards. And this is one to put in my mental scrapbook. I can't imagine a better location for my voice than out there in Greenland. On the rugged terrain, the polar wilderness, a lonely voice among the silence. Good luck to you on your journey, and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Hmm, I'm a little breathless. Can you believe it? Examining polar bear meat to make sure it's safe to eat. Overwhelming indeed. Eric sent a picture of the world from his viewpoint. I haven't been to Greenland, but what he sent me reminded me of Iceland, which I have been to. That gorgeous scrub terrain with hardy grasses buried under stretches of snow, the dark volcanic rocks, and the ice-blue water of the sea. Incredible. It makes me wish I did not spend most of my life in a basement, especially these past few months. Okay, next up, listener Christine, who signed up to be a Patreon subscriber. Hi, Jack. I just leveled up my membership to the Jane Austen package. I've been a Patreon supporter now for several years. Yeesh, how time passes. And I've enjoyed your podcast ever since. I moved up my subscription because I've realized just how much I look forward to your new episodes, saving them for days when it's particularly hard for me to go out and take my daily three-mile walk here in San Francisco. Before the pandemic, I was lucky enough to be able to walk to work with your podcast in my ear. Now, as we are all stuck at home, it's sometimes hard for me to even get out. Anyway, thank you. Your podcast is helping raise my spirits during this time. I don't mean to nag, but when is Mike going to come out with the next episode for Infinite Jest? Your friend, Christine. Hmm. I can tell you people, if you're going to write a sentence that begins, I don't mean to nag, but I like it when you finish with something Mike is supposed to do. (laughs) Not something that I'm supposed to do. Okay. Hmm. Christine, a three-mile walk in San Francisco. I wish I could be joining you there. Everything seems better when you're living in a basement. Is that the argument for God? I've heard that in debates. If God exists, why is there evil? Well, he wants free will. You have to have the ability to choose goodness, or goodness doesn't mean anything. That's the argument. Okay, well, next question. Why is there drought and famine? Why are there hurricanes? That kill people. Well, you have to have sadness and sorrow in order to appreciate the joy that comes from something like peace and safety or a bountiful harvest. That's the argument, I guess. I guess so. The other argument is, well, he works in mysterious ways. But for the argument that you have to have some downs in order to appreciate the ups, Oh, well, this is kind of far away from Christine's email. What was I talking about? Being in a basement versus walking around San Francisco. I would love to be out there in San Francisco. It's such a great city. And a three-mile walk in those streets, on those streets, would be wonderful. San Francisco, Boston, New Orleans, they say that those are the most European of the American cities, which is maybe why I like them. Although New York and Chicago might be my two favorite cities. New York, Chicago, Seattle. San Francisco. I guess that's my Mount Rushmore. If someone's going to carve cities onto a cliff worldwide, now that's tough. Rome would be in there, I suppose. Bologna, my beloved Bologna. Florence. Wow, that's three already. That's almost Mount Rushmore, and I haven't even gotten out of Italy. Maybe I need a bigger Mount Rushmore. London, Edinburgh, 
New York. Can I add a few countries? Thailand, Tibet, India. You can see where my mind is and here my body is in the basement. Thank you, Christine. Enjoy those walks and thank you for your support. I am truly grateful for your generosity and for the generosity of all of the Patreons in our Patreon community. If you'd like to join Christine in our little community, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature. And speaking of which, here's a note from Anne. Jack, I just hit upon your podcast yesterday and absolutely loved it. It was the show about Samuel Pepys. I have read many passages from his diaries over the years, but some of your comments and insights made me laugh out loud. Signed up to be a patron already, as I know I will be back for more. Thank you, Anne. Peeps, <laughs> that's good stuff. That was kind of a deep cut. It was not as popular as Anna Karenina or the Brothers Karamazov, but still good. Hey, I love deep cuts. Peeps is good stuff. Gertrude Stein. What are some other little episodes that could? Gene Toomer. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Prince, those were fun ones to do. They can't all be Hemingway and Fitzgerald people. Okay, last email is from Laura Lynn. Subject, well, gosh dang it, Jack. Jack and interns. When I opened up my podcast app the other day and saw Anna Karenina at the top of the HOL episode list, my heart literally, in the literal sense of the word, started racing. I had just started reading that incredible book a few weeks prior and had spent my morning that day having a conversation with my husband, who isn't a reader, about why a book seemingly about adultery can be life-changing. Why is it so good? Well, you can imagine my excitement as it felt like the stars aligned, the cosmic timing was right, and Anna Karenina came to me during both of my favorite pastimes, reading and listening to your podcast. Thank you, Jack, for your serendipitous timing. It truly made my day. Because of it, after the year and a half of faithful listening, I decided now was finally the time to write you an email. I was unaware of Mike's Twitter book club before that episode, and I wish I had known. But I also think that we come to books when we come to them, not before or after, and for me, it seems I needed Anna now, and not then. I also had a baby recently, so I've been a little tied up. Tolstoy captures life so beautifully, but sometimes there are seasons of life in which there just isn't time for Tolstoy. Hmm, very true. I have to compliment you on how excellent your most your more recent episodes have been. I don't know if you've changed anything or if it's really me, the listener, but I have to say that each episode during this pandemic has affected me more deeply than during any other time. It may be both of us together in this strange global situation. My mind and soul seem to crave both logic and art, the sensible and the ethereal. There is a natural pace to your podcast that seems to coincide with what I need that particular day. I don't know what it is or what you're doing, but keep it up. You've removed the pretension out of literature, which has helped me do the same. I used to read to be well-read, but now I choose a book because I genuinely want to read it. Oh, wow. Such a good line. Oh, I wish so many people would absorb that information, would take that to heart. I used to read to be well-read, but now I, cho I choose a book because I genuinely want to read it. Back to the email. I have been so impressed with how you and your team have given into the strengths of the podcast as a medium and made it your art. My favorite episodes are the ones in which Form mirrors function with the author or work you cover and the way you choose to deliver your content. 
I am a mother of two small children, both of whom are so smart and active I can barely keep up with them. Our son is two and a half and is currently learning to read and write. So many of our afternoons are spent listening to another HOL episode while I help him trace the alphabet. I can barely contain my excitement as I get to share a part of the world that I love so much with him, to see his little mind expand each day as he makes new connections. I've listened to your Raising Readers episode three times now and have made a conscious effort to get caught with a book in my hand. What an insight. It's not only good for him, but way better for me too. Bedtime with the Beatles has become Beth Time with the Beatles and is a nightly staple in our house, thanks to you. Mike's insight about exposing children to things above their current level has been well proven in our house. We have been amazed at how our son has risen to the occasion each time I give him media or problems that are just beyond his reach. Thank you very much for that episode. Speaking of media beyond their reach, I have chosen to always, to always listen to your podcast out loud assuming the content is generally appropriate for small ears. Some of my favorite memories as a child are of my family all gathered together in the living room each night, listening to a book on tape. I've wanted to recreate that with my children, so I rotate between your podcast and our collection of children's literature on Audible. It has been such a wonderful pastime during long afternoons when my son won't nap or when I fold the laundry while my five-month-old daughter lays on the bed watching my every move. They are always watching me, always listening. I want to fill my ears and mind with the best of things so that their ears and minds might also glean what they can as they are ready for it. Parenthood and reading are inseparable to me, though I can't say I have too much time to sit down and read during the day. I did make myself a little reading nook in the corner of my room and move the nursery rocking chair into it so that I can nurse my daughter and read at the same time. That's the only way I've been able to work through Anna Karenina, and it has been a joy. I know there are set times that I must stop doing chores, sit down, and feed my daughter, so why not use that as a set time to enjoy Tolstoy? Oh, I did something similar. Not with the nursing, either with a bottle or just when I was in charge of holding my child in my arms, rocking him to sleep. I read my way through Patrick O'Brien, finished those books. It was awesome. I looked forward to it every single day. It was meditative. Back to the email. As a compulsively responsible person, it's hard for me to sit in general. There's too much going on, too much to do, but my soul craves intellectual stimulation and your podcast allows me to do both. I can wash dishes and revel in Thoreau. It feels a bit like being both Mary and Martha at once. More recently, your podcast has accompanied me on long drives with my daughter to her various doctor's appointments around Phoenix Valley in Arizona. She has myelomeningocele, good luck, spina bifida. Not sure I pronounced that correctly. Bringing her into this world is worthy of a book itself, but all I will say is that everything she does is a 10, and the only way I've made it through the last year of our lives is through the selfless love of my husband and my best friend, Literature. Your podcast keeps me company as I fulfill my responsibilities and allows me some much-needed time away from the worries about my daughter. It's become a staple during my self-care times, whenever I can snag them. So thank you, Jack, sincerely. You are adding something of value greater than money to this world. You are helping people get through life together and maybe even helping us notice and enjoy life a little bit better. What you do matters. Thank you again, Laurelyn. P.S. Please, 
please, please don't ever stop making Beatles references. The Sonnet 18 episode was a dream. That's in all caps. P.P.S. I almost forgot the obligatory Don Quixote mention. It wouldn't be an H.O.L. email without it. I grew up watching and loving The Man of La Mancha. So when I heard Mike write it off in that fateful episode, I basically wrote Mike off. (laughs) Mind you, I had never read the book. And this was also my first exposure to Mike on your podcast. So after deciding Mike was wrong, I bought a copy of Don Quixote. I got 20 pages in, felt tired, and stopped reading. I haven't picked it up since. So there's that. <laughs> Laura Lynn, thank you so much for this beautiful email. I just cannot tell you how moved I was by it. Was an M. My heart is with every parent of small children, even when things are at their easiest. They are still hard, inspiring, and heartwarming, yes, but difficult nevertheless. I used to say the hardest day for me was when my oldest son went off to kindergarten. At preschool, we dropped him off. We were there. We stood in the corner for a while, watching him adjust, and then we would disappear gradually, and he would go forth on his own until we came to pick him up. For kindergarten, we had just moved into the neighborhood and we had never even been to the school he was going to. The bus came and he climbed aboard, wearing his little sticker to say who he was and what classroom he was supposed to be in, in case he got lost. And he just climbed aboard and never even looked back. And that was it. Five years of having him be ours, all ours, was suddenly gone. We shared him with the world now. He was independent from us, a little more independent, and it felt like a limb had been severed, even worse than that in some ways. It was like my mind was suddenly cut in two. And our younger son burst into tears. It was like a total eclipse of the sun for him, and he didn't know if the sun would ever come back. He was like those people who wondered if the sun was just gone forever. And in some ways... It wouldn't come back in the same way. Things would always be a little different. We had entered a new phase. Just as someday soon we'll be entering one when he goes off to college. And I would tell that story to other parents of him going to kindergarten, sharing the joy and the pride and the heartbreak that I felt. But I would always caveat that with, other than the times he was sick, the first day of kindergarten was the hardest thing I've ever done as a parent. Other than the days he was sick, those were worse. Those were the hardest. Those are when you forget about sleep and food and everything else for yourself, consumed by worries and fears, and yet you see them struggling along, perfect optimists, working hard, doing their best, almost surprised by the concern of their parents. And sometimes they just give in to their fatigue. My happy little crawler just laid down on the floor once, his face on the carpet, exhausted. He was a busybody child. And here he was, so tuckered out that he couldn't move. It was adorable and terrifying. What was wrong? Then he started vomiting, and we raced him to the doctor and found out he had, I want to say coronavirus. I almost said that, but it was something else. Must have been. Was a word like, okay. Actually, I just looked it up in my old emails. Rotovirus. That's what it was. I remember the fear that we had, but also the feeling of, okay, this happens. We can't be incapacitated by this or feel sorry for ourselves. Our little guy doesn't need parents who are terrified or exhausted or weak. 
He needs us to be strong, to make good decisions, and to keep things going on the right track. Even though you might not always feel that way, you still need to make breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks. You still need to vacuum the floor and wash the sheets. You still need to have energy to do all that and to work and to find some time to sleep yourself somehow. And you might have multiple children. They need things too. It's not easy even when the illness is temporary. And if it involves doctor visits and diagnoses and prognoses and surgeries and procedures and rehabilitation and decision-making and everything else, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. My younger son broke his leg when he was a baby. That was hard. Very, very hard. And yet, there is inspiration there as well. I can remember when it healed and We were amazed in the doctor's office, amazed and relieved, and the doctor just smiled and said, isn't it amazing? And he said something that always stuck with me. He said, with a baby, if you have one half of the bone in this corner of the room and the other half of the bone in the opposite corner of the room, those halves will find each other and grow back together. And seeing the little trooper recover and stay positive while he recovers... It was amazing. And so, Laura Lynn, my heart goes out to you and your family as your daughter moves forward in her life and as all of you help her and keep growing and changing together. Hang in there, Laura Lynn. You are doing the work of angels. And thank you for the email. I remember turning to literature, too, when I was in the middle of child raising, and I remember what a lifeline it was for me. I could plug into being an adult by opening a book and reading a paragraph. And I felt like my brain was a, a desert, a desert landscape, and I was pouring water into it. It just soaked up and disappeared. A hard rain was falling. And I am very glad that this show has been there for you, too, been part of that rain. Wow. My goodness, what a day for the emails. And now we get to turn to two of Shakespeare's great sonnets, 129 and 130, two of the Dark Lady sonnets. We will do that after this. So, a quick reminder of these sonnets. We've gone over this already, but to quickly orient us, Shakespeare had what is thought of as a lost period. We know he got married to Anne Hathaway in 1582. He was 18. She was 26. They had a baby, and then they had twins, which was recorded in 1585. And then, suddenly, he shows up in London in the historical records in 1592. What did he do in those seven years in between? Was he acting? Was he writing? When did he leave Stratford-upon-Avon? We don't know for sure. And then London is hit with the plague. The theaters are closed more often than they're open for several of those seasons. Shakespeare turns to writing, 
sonnets, probably in the 1590s. They're published as a collection in 1609. And the first 126 of those sonnets are called the Fair Youth Sonnets. They're addressed to or refer to or at least categorized as being part of the cycle where Shakespeare is giving some advice to a young protege or platonic lover. It's not perfectly clear, but he cares for this person and wants him to do well. There's a lot of speculation about who this person was and what Shakespeare's relationship with him was. And then the Dark Lady enters the scene, starting in Sonnet 127, and Shakespeare, or this speaker of the sonnets, changes. Suddenly, we're not just in the world of advice-giving, we're not hearing about love in a kind of songbird way. This isn't the singing of the nightingale or the poet singing a song to the nightingale or about the nightingale. This is the poet trying to choke the nightingale to death. (laughs) That might be an overstatement. Uh, The image makes me smile. The Dark Lady poems are about the agonies of love. They're about lust. They're about those dark nights of the soul when you think, why are you doing this to me? Have you ever thought that? A woman, or maybe it could be a man too, a lover. I could say, except I don't really mean a lover. It could just be a person. Maybe the person ignores you completely. Maybe she talks to you once, smiles, you fall head over heels, and then you try to talk to her again. It turns out she has a boyfriend. She doesn't want to have anything to do with you. And you think, why are you doing this to me? And and any neutral observer would say, what do you mean? Why is she doing this to you? She's not doing anything. She's just going about her business. You're doing that all to yourself. That's what happens some of the time, right? And you kind of know this even when you're in it. Or maybe your lover breaks up with you, which happens, people. Not everyone gets along perfectly forever. You know that. You know it's her right to break up with you. You know you're not perfect. And yet you're miserable. You're tormented, racked with jealousy. And you think, why are you doing this to me? Why? What gives you this power over me? And that's where it starts to become a bit self-reflective. What is it about me that makes me so crazy about this? Why am I so vulnerable? Why am I feeling so strongly about this? Can I ever get over this? Can I move on? What else should I do? Take my own life? Fight the new lover? Make demands on my ex? Stalk her or him? Can I hurt them somehow? Why am I even why am I even thinking like this? And then when you throw sex into it, it becomes I felt so good before and I feel so bad now. I feel exhausted. I feel spent. It's like the rise and fall of intercourse itself. Excitement, passion, bliss. And now bitterness, recriminations, self-loathing, the relationship experience is running parallel to the sexual experience. Well, here we are in the world of Sonnet 129. What I love about this sonnet is not just that it's clever and insightful, although it's very clever and very insightful. There are layers upon layers of meaning here because Shakespeare just grabbed words and they all came to him with all their meanings ready to go, pecked up with... Suitcases full, like they're ready to go on a voyage with him, and he just put them in the right place, following the double meanings and the triple meanings to their logical conclusions, because that's just who he was, and that's what he could do. There's a lot to unpack in Sonnet 129, but what I love about it is that it shifts tone. 
The style is different. The voice. That's another one of Shakespeare's great gifts, how he could play a part in his voice like an actor. He could inhabit the right voice that suited for the thought and emotion he was trying to convey. He was like a method writer who could be inside the right mentality, in the right frame of mind, and then the words and the rhythm and the rhyme all fall into place. What's the right sound for someone in lust? Someone who's agonizing over the experience, who's frustrated, upset, in deep, dark, a deep, dark place. Someone who feels like they can't get their point across. Someone who feels like the world's against them. The lover has spurned them. Their body has taken them into worlds of heartache and misery that they can't escape. Here's how a sonnet sounds to me, how the words sound to me. This is a a conventional sonnet. Say our lover is in some green pasture with a lute playing softly in the background. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's sonnet 18, right? Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. Here's how poetry readings sound to me today when I Hear this, I want to go running from the room. Da 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 There's this poetic voice. It's not how I read poetry on the page. It's not how I read it in my mind. And when poets adopt that voice when they're reading their own poems, it makes me cringe. I don't know why. It's fingernails on a blackboard for me. What's the right sound for a man who's frustrated by lust? Is it the regular sonnet? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Shall I compare thee to the summer's day? Someone who's frustrated by the experience. Is that the song in their mind? Is that the rhythm that their heart beats to? Someone who's in agony over what a lover has done? We know from the Dark Lady sonnets that there was a triangular relationship here in Shakespeare where the speaker cannot stand it. And yet lust is all-powerful, isn't it? It's all-consuming. What's the right music to convey that? Instead of the stately march of iambic pentameter, wouldn't you expect to hear something more like, Right? Urge. The urge of it. Is that where that word comes from? Urge. Is that an onomatopoeia? Urge. It's Sonnet 129. That's what we get. These aren't stately lines marching down Main Street like a float in a parade. These aren't the swift steps of a proud groom on his way down the wedding aisle. These are snarls and barks and cries of self-loathing. Misery, the poet Don Patterson says, this is a great quote. Mm. The poet Don Patterson says, quote, that this sonnet 129 has, quote, a terrific display of self-directed fury, raging away in the little cage of the sonnet like a spitting wildcat, end quote. Thank you, Mr. Don Patterson. That is so good. I'm going to read it again. Sonnet 129 is, quote, a terrific display of self-directed fury, raging away in the little cage of the sonnet like a spitting wildcat. I have a few versions of this. We heard Maureen Beatty. Let's see if Ray Fiennes 
gets at the anguish we're looking for here. The expense of spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner but despised straight, past reason hunted and no sooner had past reason hated as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit and in possession so, had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof and proved a very woe before a joy proposed behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Mm. Getting there. Getting there. Let's look at the lines. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame. Okay. Waste is spelled W-A-S-T-E. But a waste of shame is kind of an odd phrase. Shamefulness is a waste. It's just discarded. It's just wasted to feel shameful. But actually, this is one where the secondary meaning is probably primary, at least for me. A waste of shame. A waste as in W-A-I-S-T. A waste of shame. Who has a waste of shame? A prostitute, maybe a woman of loose morals. And what kind of expense of spirit... That's ejaculation. My apologies for listeners who are doing this with their kids in the background. I'm trying to keep this clean. But that's the way to read the line. It can be read two ways, of course. The clean way, spending all your time and energy on feeling shameful, is a waste. The other reading is ejaculating into an unworthy body. Keep both of those in mind. The sonnet goes right into a diatribe against lust. The expensive spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, so here he's telling us lust in action, which I take to mean having sex. The activity of lust is sex, which is the expensive spirit in a waste of shame. Waste, W-A-I-S-T. Until action. So we're talking about lust before sex, lust during sex, and whatever comes after sex. That's part of this sonnet. There's a beautiful line later. Had, having, and in quest to have, extreme. All those are have outsized proportions to us. We're unreasonable in all three aspects, before, during, and after. The expense of spirit and a waste of shame is lust in action, until action lust is, and here's the great lines, perjured murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. That's our first quatrain. He's hating on lust. He's so angry, he can barely get the lines out, can barely get the words out. 
His mind is just jumping from one insult to another, like a man choking on his own fury. That's what I mean by the lines, the rhythms here matching the sentiment. You can imagine, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? He could write about this topic with words that sound like that, like sentences and normal speech, matching the soft heartbeat like we saw in Sonnet 18. But this is, ah, ah, can't you just see the lover frustrated here? You, you, I, uh, why, you, you can't even think straight, let alone talk straight. That's what lust does. Lust, why do you make me like this? You ruin everything. Until I have sex, you are this demon inside me. Untrustworthy, crude, cruel, savage. I hate you, lust. Next quatrain. Enjoyed no sooner, but despised it straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had. Past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Those are some beautiful lines. As soon as you enjoy it, enjoy sex, you hate everything. You move heaven and earth to have sex, and then you hate everything in heaven and earth afterwards. You hate you act unreasonably before and then act unreasonably after and in between, during, you feel unreasonably blissful. The emotions are outsized here, all out of proportion. Everything is out of whack when it comes to lust. It's like swallowed bait. You took the bait, but it was a trap. It was there just to make you mad, furious, insane. Next four lines. Mad in pursuit and in possession so... Had, having, and in quest to have, extreme. A bliss in proof, and proved a very woe. Before, a joy proposed, behind, a dream. That's what sex is, isn't it? It drives you crazy. It's all you want, and then it feels so good, so blissful, and then you're miserable. Why? Why are we not just coasting into this normally? Why is it like racing up a mountain and then plummeting to the valley? Why not a gentle plateau? And then the couplet, the final couplet, another grand slam. Here finally comes the reflective tone. The rhythm changes here. This is where the agony subsides. The thoughtful person steps in and speaks. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well, to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. Hmm. What's the alternative here? Avoiding sex? Nobody does that. Everyone knows that it's bad. Everyone knows that it takes over, but you can't resist it. You have to take the hell to have this heaven. You end up in hell until you recover enough to go look for heaven again. And then you do the same thing all over again. You're just as insane. Excellent stuff. There was no dark lady in there, but in the cycle, in the context of the other poems before and after, it stands out. We know what the dark lady is doing to Shakespeare. The fair youth didn't drive him this crazy in this way. Okay, before we turn to Sonnet 130, let's hear one more version of Sonnet 129. This is the closest one I found to the agony I was looking for. The, uh, an er, uh, this is Rich Summer, whom you might know from Mad Men. He played Harry Crane in that show. He did this video 
with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. There's a musical accompaniment here. It's worth watching the video on YouTube if you would like. Here's the snippet that contains Sonnet 129. expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. And till action, lust is perjured, murderous, Bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust, enjoyed no sooner, but despise it straight. Past reason hunted, and no sooner had past reason hated, as a swallowed bait on purpose laid to make the taker mad. Mad in pursuit and in possession, so. Had, having and in quest to have extreme. A bliss in proof and proved very woe. Before, a joy proposed behind that leads men to this hell. Mm. There we go. That's the version I was looking for. <laughs> Oh, man, that is so good. Okay, thank you, Rich Summer and Trent Reznor. Okay, moving on to Sonnet 130. Sonnet 130 is extremely famous. It has another home run first line. My mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. It's a beautiful poem. This actually has the dark lady, who is so-called because she's described in the poems as having raven-like hair and dun-colored skin. Dun means dark hair. Some say she might be Mediterranean. That's one of the speculative uh, theories. Spanish or Italian, maybe. Some say maybe from Africa. We're not going to explore all of the biographical theories here. Maybe we'll have a Dark Lady episode as well. What's important is that Shakespeare goes out of his way to say that her beauty is not conventional. This is before we even get to Sonnet 130. And Shakespeare says, you have no idea. You have your conception of beauty, and it's not her, and yet, my God, she is breathtaking. So there you go. Deal with it. And then in Sonnet 130, he turns that into a conceit that also takes a look at poetry itself. It's like a trapeze act, swinging one way and then a pause and then swinging back the other way, coming back for poetry itself. You're probably familiar with this poem, he basically catalogs all the ways that his lover is ugly. 
And then he says, and yet she's more beautiful than anyone. And he mocks poetry for going overboard in its treatment of women and lovers. This is the tradition of sonnets and poets that he's coming out of. Petrarch and Dante and Sir Philip Sidney had all done this. The woman is basically a kind of godlike figure, a figure of great beauty, someone on a pedestal, an angel. Harps play when she walks by. Dazzling light exudes from her hair. She's perfect. She's radiant. And Shakespeare says, eh, I know what I should be saying as a poet, but you know what? Let's be real. And maybe the reason why he came to that conclusion that this was necessary was because he was in love with this dun-colored woman who no one else liked, or maybe I should say no one else thought of as beautiful. And maybe I shouldn't say no one. Maybe I should just say the world, conventional wisdom. She didn't fit the right stereotype of beauty held in that day. You can imagine someone today saying, eh, Oh, you people are all going for skinny, but I like this woman here, and she's curvy. Or, eh, I know you all like this kind of look, but I like this guy. One of my sister's friends, when she was a kid, was in love with Bob Newhart. Everyone else liked the guys in Duran Duran and Prince, and I don't even know, Ralph Macchio, maybe, who was back, Scott Bayo back then, Parker Stevenson, Rob Lowe. Tom Cruise, you know who that is, right? Rob Rob Lowe and Tom Cruise, young Rob Lowe and young Tom Cruise. That's who everyone else liked. And this friend of my sister's was about 13 or 14. And the guy she loved was Bob Newhart. And you can imagine that if she wrote a poem, she wouldn't be talking about his perfect feathered hair or his dreamy eyes or his smooth young skin or his perfect white teeth. And that might lead her to think, well... Who the hell cares about any of those things anyway? You guys are idiots for thinking that's the only way someone can be beautiful. You can like Rob and Tom and Parker and Ralph. I like Bob. If you made her a poet who wrote sonnets and read sonnets and was thinking about the world of poetry and what it did and what it relied upon, maybe you'd be getting close to what Shakespeare was thinking here. He was the upstart crow, mocking the lazy thinking of others. Ha ha, morons. Go ahead and fall off the cliff into mawkish sentimentality. I'll be up here polishing my fingernails until you're done. Then I'll write a sonnet that's better than yours and makes all of your lines look ridiculous. Sonnet 130 does that. Sonnet 130 is pretty straightforward. Let's hear it. We have three versions to listen to. Here's Daniel Radcliffe, a.k.a. Harry Potter. This is a pretty... Naive version of it, pretty straight-laced, kind of innocent. Let's hear that one first. Sonnet 130 by William Shakespeare My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, 
I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Hmm. Thank you, Daniel. I don't know how much we need to assess this one, how much analysis we need to do here. Shakespeare's saying, I know what you'll say. You'll say your lover has eyes like the sun and lips like coral and white breasts and beautiful hair. Her cheeks are like roses. Her breath is like perfume. Her voice is like music. And when she walks, she floats above the ground. That's what you're going to say. And yet I love her. And isn't it better to love someone for what they really are than to love this idealized version of someone? You know your lover is human, right? You know she has flaws. So do you love those flaws too? Or do you want to erase them out when you're writing a poem about her? Which is it, poet? That's Shakespeare, the upstart crow, smarter than his colleagues, calling them out, catching them in their illogical position. What if her lips aren't like coral? What if her breasts aren't perfectly white? What if her hair is not beautiful? What if her eyes are not like the sun? That's what he's saying. Now, let's hear another reading. This is Stephen Fry, the comedian who's been through a lot more than young Mr. Radcliffe. He's also kind of cheeky himself, kind of irreverent. He knows how to assess the world with sadness and a twinkle in his eye. He does both. Let's hear his somewhat more bemused version. But wait, before I get there, let me give you my own story, and maybe this will help you be in the right frame of mind for Stephen Fry. Even though Shakespeare is flattering his mistress here, saying, I love her warts and all, it's also pretty savage. The breath that from my mistress reeks... Black wires grow upon her head? Hmm. (laughs) How would you feel if you were the mistress? I was living in Taiwan, and there was this thing in Taiwan that you could adorn greeting cards and things like that with English words, and it didn't really matter what the words actually said. It was more the look of the English that was part of the design. Kind of classed it up a little bit. It's a lot like people today getting tattoos of Chinese characters. They might pick out a word or two and have the character for that put on their skin, but it's not the same as really understanding the language. They like the look of it as much as the meaning. And I had a student who was getting married, and she was so proud and excited, and she brought to one of our lessons a book of photos, her wedding album. Very classy, very expensively done. It was very nice. She was so excited. And I don't know if this was an accident or if there was some malevolent English speaker who did this, but they had lines of poetry running across the page, faint in the background, like along with pictures of birds and ribbons and bells and so on, but also lines of poetry. And they had used Sonnet 130. So there would be this picture of my student in this beautiful dress standing in front of a waterfall, and it would say, If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. Underneath her photo. And then she's smiling, and it says, My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. And on the page where the bride and groom kissed, the final culminating page of the album, the line underneath said, And in some perfumes there is is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I couldn't believe it. I wanted to tell her because I thought she should go demand a refund. But I didn't. I didn't say anything. And I'm very, very glad that I didn't. I hope she continues to live in blissful ignorance. She liked her wedding album, which was great. And that's maybe the hope for Shakespeare's Dark Lady. 
Maybe someone told her, hey, you know, Shakespeare wrote a sonnet about you. It's an all-timer. It's going to be a legend. They'll be reading it 400 years from now. In fact, it's a whole new direction for lovers and poetry, and some might say it's the most honest and sincere love poem ever written. And the dark lady, don't we hope that she just smiled and said, wow, thank you for telling me. Wouldn't that be better than if she actually read the thing? (laughs) Black wires? Breath that reeks? I'd rather be Beatrice. Thank you very little. Anyway, here's the tongue-in-cheek rendition by Stephen Fry. Listen for the humor in his voice. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I've seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know, music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love as rare as any she, belied with false compare. Hmm. That's pretty good. Thank you, Stephen Fry. And here we come to my favorite version that I was able to find, Alan Rickman. You know Alan Rickman? Ah, he's the villain in the Die Hard movies. I wish I had him reading Sonnet 129 because he's got the agony. He's got Shakespeare, miserable Shakespeare, the Shakespeare of the Dark Lady sequence down. Listen to this and think how much more life, how much more bitterness and frustration has gone into this reading, especially compared with, let's say, the Daniel Radcliffe version. It's like Joe Cocker used to say about his voice. I had to do a lot of hard living to get this voice. Alan Rickman had a lot of dark thoughts to get the playfulness out, I think. I love this version. There's darkness here and some anger and some bitterness, even in this Sonnet 130. It's the world-weary Shakespeare, the one who's been tormented by this dark lady and who's writing a poem to immortalize her, but he's angry at her too, and that translates into some anger at poets and poetry. It's cynical and jaded, and finally at the end, if not hopeful or bright or sunny, at least measured. It's what happens when you come out of your rant, when you're gasping, you're panting after having ranted, and you can finally see things for what they are. You're resigned. We are going to wrap things up here, giving Alan Rickman and his rendition of William Shakespeare's Sonnet 130 the last word. My mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. 
I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go, my mistress when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet by heaven I think my love as rare as any she belied with false compare. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. We are teamed up with thepodglomerate.com and Lidhub Radio, which is exciting. A lot of developments in the works for Jack Wilson and the little literary podcast that could. My thanks to Shakespeare and to all of you for joining me for this theme month. Thursday Sonnets. And to my emailers, who, as always, have made my week that much brighter. I love hearing from all of you. I'm a million weeks behind on responding, but I do try to get to them all eventually. My apologies if I'm late responding to yours. I read them all, rest assured, if you were at all restless about that. (laughs) Some people might have been, who knows? Not all of us are lucky enough to rest easy about everything. I certainly don't. I rest uneasy about the smallest things. If I rested easy, I wouldn't know what to do with myself, probably. But that's another story. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll be back on Monday and next Thursday. Hopefully, if all goes well, we will have more episodes for you. So please do subscribe, rate and review, and do all that good stuff. In the meantime, I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a sonic universe.